Hello and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod. Welk. And I am Annie Kriegbaum. How are you? You were 10 minutes late, but I was just going to, I want to give you the space to apologize. Oh, that was uh, my birthday gift to myself. Is it your birthday? No, it was last week. It's okay. You don't have to. It was? (laughs) It was Monday. It was Monday. It was Monday. (laughs) You don't even know when your birthday was. How am I supposed to know? It was this week, like the Monday of this week? Yeah, yeah. What'd you do? I actually went out to dinner with my um my team. That, <laughs> I know I, got, I hired all of them. Were they and now I make them hang yeah. out with me? Yeah, I was gonna say it's very Hollywood to like socialize with the people that are on your payroll. I figured it was a Monday night. Like you know, I did the fun stuff over the weekend, but I thought Monday would could be nice. Did you get any good presents for your birthday? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they gave me, it was so sweet. I wasn't expecting them to get me anything. They got me um, these really cool, like, ceramic cups for my kitchen. Because we have, you know, people with really cool tastes, like, designy people that work on the team. That's fun. Yeah. Did your parents get you any presents? I just like, pre- I like, I, are presents still a thing when you're my older? Mom, when, last time I was in Dallas, my mom took me to Neiman's and she was like, we have a birthday coming up. So she bought me some shoes. Neiman's. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Speaking of Neiman Marcus, did you like that story that I sent you about how Chanel is limiting? You can only buy one of this one type of bag per year per customer. I'm surprised they weren't already doing that. The headline is Chanel limits purchases of their most popular handbags to one per customer each year. And so to me, this is like Chanel trying to be Hermes. Like, I think that the way that Hermes works You have to spend tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in the store before you're even like on a wait list for a bag. And then you have to buy the bag. So the cost of the bag is actually the money you've had to spend on the other Hermes ship plus the price of the bag. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of like the expected way you do it. I feel like Chanel is just trying to be that with telling people that they can't buy more than one. Do you think there's like something here about the distribution of wealth? And like the new money, they're probably freaking out because all these people that they don't want wearing Chanel are now able to afford Chanel. I just worry like with a Chanel bag, if it's going to keep its value, hold its value rather, as well as a Hermes bag. I don't think it will. I mean, the one that in the picture on Hypebeast style that they have to accompany the article, it's like a PVC leather. It's like it's not even all leather. So, like, I feel like the joke's on us. You know what's crazy? I, At least Hermes bags are leather. I wanted to invest in a new bag, and I was looking at the row, and they're very expensive. It's, like, a third of the price of my car. And so I went on the Real Real, you know, my favorite website. I searched, and they had a ton of bags in the row that were nice. Usually they only have, you know, the weird ones that nobody wanted. But they were more expensive than their MSRP. Because the real real will list like this is what this would have normally cost, and they're selling for more on the real real. Boggles That's so my crazy. mind. You know who else has really great handbags? If you like the row, you'll love Kate. Let me tell you. K H A I T E. Yeah. Oh, that was. Oh my god, that was the best present. I cried. I fucking cried. So I was gonna buy myself either a handbag or a Kate denim jacket because when I was in LA, I wore my co-founder and friend Rebecca's jacket and then I got to work on my birthday it was literally the day before I was looking on their website to buy myself one and there was a huge freaking cape box on my desk and Rebecca got me 
a little Kate Denham jacket. I couldn't believe it. That's really nice. That's like how well she knows me. We never talked about it. It was very touching. I'm not, it sounds like very superficial. Like I got this designer jacket, but like it really, really meant a lot. So speaking of luxury, and this is something I've wanted to talk about for a while. So I have an issue and my issue is that the FCC, no, the FTC, which is the one that does like influencer rules. Federal Trade Commission, the FTT, FTC. <laughs> the FTC is like all over influencers about having to disclose mm, mm-hmm. everything and anything. You know, they have to put ad above the fold. It has to be like in the first war. You know, like if there's just like all these crazy rules at this point. The location tag has to say this is a yeah, paid like partnership, yada, partner yada, yada, yada. Or something, yeah. Meanwhile, Beyonce has what I can only imagine to be a multi, multi million dollar deal with Tiffany, an LVMH company. And she posts videos of her and Jay-Z saying about love at Tiffany, no disclosure statement. She's on the cover of Harper's Bazaar wearing all Tiffany jewelry, no disclosure statement. Very rarely like, and she's, do celebs need to right, have a disclosure but, statement well, to wear stuff on a magazine. Though. But it's all negotiated through LVMH advertising. So like they're saying you can have Beyonce, but she has to be wearing exclusively Tiffany because Beyonce is being paid by Tiffany to like do this whole campaign. And it's not Tiffany. It's an issue that I have with the old system of media. You know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine in that like there's no regulation and consumers are none the wiser for the ways in which like. So Jennifer Lawrence, who is a Dior ambassador, I would imagine that she's never not worn Dior on the cover of a magazine. Same thing with Charlize Theron. Like and it's built in. They're paid promotions. And like the fact that, you know, these brands uh, don't have to disclose anything and it is completely misleading to the consumer. It's not like the stylist is like deciding to put Beyonce and Tiffany because she loves Tiffany and she thinks it's perfect for this look. It's like all this negotiated thing. And it just irritates me that influencers and I like am never coming to the defense of influencers, but I think that influencers seem less authentic. It's kind of like the powers that be taking power away from influencers, you know, eliminating the competition by like making them put all these disclosures everywhere when like LVMH can pay Beyonce millions of dollars and everyone thinks it's like fine that she can just like post about it. And like there can be magazine covers about it and all this stuff. And there's no disclosures. I have noticed even with smaller influencers, though, that they are basically on a brand's payroll. It's like a brand that they collaborate with a lot. And you'll see them in the comments hyping that brand still on like future posts. And I think, and I get it, maybe you really do like the products, but there is a weird dynamic there where they're like, you know, paying your rent and you are, you know, by all intents and purposes, organically, quote unquote, hyping that brand. I don't know. It just seems weird. I don't know what the right answer is. It's definitely tricky, tricky, tricky. I don't know. Like when I saw the bizarre covers um, of Beyonce with her wearing all this Tiffany jewelry, I just thought it seemed like shady. <laughs> Let it, it be known it that like, Nick thinks Beyonce is shady. No, I don't think it's Beyonce. I think she is not the person. Well, I guess technically you if she, she was an influencer, she should be the one who would be having to disclose the paid partnership. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Anyone can weigh in. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just, I find that I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. Anyway, oh, well. can we talk should, about- should we get into top stories? <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, speaking of luxury shopping, <laughs> this is not a beauty story, but you know, we love Kim Skims. Yeah, we're like half a Skims podcast. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the most hectic woman on Instagram this week, her name is Connie and she's a personal shopper. <laughs> and we have no idea who she is. I didn't know that personal shoppers were a thing. She's Connie underscore personal underscore shopping. She's and it's a- not clear where in the world she is. She looks like she is an influencer type person that will go into luxury stores, try on these luxury things and buy them for her, I guess, clients that she's personally shopping for. And I imagine they're all in like Dubai. (laughs) And her whole Instagram is just like selfies of her in dressing rooms, trying on Fendi, Prada, Gucci. Anyway, so this past week, an error or not, I don't know why she thought this was a good idea, but posted the first images of a not yet released Skims X Fendi collab. So it's basically like tight little Skims outfits, baby tees, leggings, whatever, in all over Fendi prints, monograms. And it quickly got picked up. HFT group is the Instagram account that we follow for all of our insidery fashion, bitchy fashion gossip. I prefer it to Diet Prada because they're not like, I don't know, they're not as like high and mighty. They're just like really into like fashion and what's going on. And they more like celebrate and give interesting information versus try to tear people down. But they posted it. They keep on saying that everybody's like taking these photos off the internet. I don't know who has the power to take photos off the internet. I guess the Kardashians would if anybody does. And they said, yeah, this Connie personal shopper basically went into the showroom and posted all these images of the collab, like leaking it everywhere and i was like god connie she must be freaking out but then i went to her instagram and she's just like she's not going about business as usual (laughs) she posted more fendi today you know what i feel like she she has the i know but if she has the right clients like what are they gonna do cut her off no she's like buying i don't know we don't who are her clients That's what I'm asking. They have to be very powerful people. I mean, Connie is definitely shopping for a lot of lunch date with friends. She has like eight Louis Vuitton bags and one Bottega bag at a very cute cafe. Connie, where are you? If you're listening, please email us. Subscribe to our Patreon because you can probably afford the $50 one. Yeah. Yeah. Charge it to one of your clients. Charge it to two of your clients. Hashtag chargeback. This was, I've never seen you so excited about a makeup palette collaboration than you were when you... <laughs> DM'd me that ColourPop announced a collaboration with the National Basketball Association. <laughs> I wasn't that excited. I just thought it was funny. I just feel like you're like into basketball and makeup and rarely do the two ever meet. Rarely. Yeah. I needed a personnel. I needed like a something to make myself more interesting last year. So I got really into the <laughs> basketball. And so I haven't really been keeping up this year. Apparently the Mavericks are doing well. But yeah, ColourPop released a bunch of like little sets for different NBA teams. How many collaborations can you do? Endless. It's fine. It's like little like nine shadow palettes that are like all the team's colors. They did the Bulls. They did the Mavericks. I will say NBA merch for women, sports merch for women in general is one of the saddest categories I think I've ever seen. It's just all all weird shit that nobody ever wants to wear. It's like rhinestones. It's like... I don't know who the target audience is, but it's not like cool young women that like sports. I was looking on Amazon for a sleep mask, like one of those like blackout bubbled, like where it doesn't, there's no pressure on your eyeballs. And I saw that Amazon had an option to search for sleep masks for women (laughs) and they just are pink. And I thought that was funny that we're still doing that. You know, they have like also like pens for women. Pens? Yeah. For women. And they're like pink. pink Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we love that. (laughs) (laughs) Or they have, they're these ones that I just found that have like a big diamond on the top of them, like a crystal. 
Oh, yeah, that's what I used to... To sign your employees' checks, right? Yeah, as a girl boss, that (laughs) is the pin that I use. I love that for you. Okay. RMS Beauty has been acquired. RMS, for those who don't know, was one of the first very natural makeup brands. Quote, unquote, Quote, unquote, clean, but so clean that like they sold a jar of coconut oil and called it coconut cream, and it was just coconut oil. Founded by this makeup artist. And it was like $70. Yes. (laughs) This makeup artist named (laughs) Rosemary Swift. She started the brand in 2009. She worked on Miranda Kerr, Giselle Bundchen, famously. She's in Sephora and Space NK. Rosemary, who I've met, is not without (laughs) controversy. She speaks her mind and has gotten in a lot of trouble for doing so. I feel like there's been a lot of drama about like shade ranges and sunscreen. She's not sensitive. But what I think is interesting is that the brand was still acquired. It was acquired by a Dallas-based private equity firm called Highlander. And they brought in a beauty veteran named David Olson to run the company as CEO. David founded and sold a company to Derm Store in 2009. And then he was there until he launched Beauty at Net-A-Porte. And then he was the CEO at Cospar before that. So I thought that was interesting that she has sold the company and sold the company in spite of being a controversial character. Their portfolio is like so crazy. I'm not seeing any other like consumer brands in here except for Del Monte. That's interesting. You know, they make like the canned yeah, yeah, yeah. green beans. <laughs> Wait, let me see their exits. Yeah, no, I don't know. It doesn't seem like they really invest in CPG, but shout out Dallas. <laughs> Our next story kind of goes hand in hand with another story. Last week, we was it last week that we announced that Officine Bouillet yes. was acquired by LVMH? This week, we have some Santa Maria Novella news. They're the Italian kind of apothecary pseudo pharmaceutical, but this is like pharmaceutical in the 1500s when stuff was like the magic slash medicine crossover was very strong. They're famously known for being started by monks. Santa Maria Novella has been acquired by Ital Mobilaire, which is an investment company from Italy. This is from WWD and it's owned by one family, the Pazenti family. So if you ever see a Pazenti on Raya, you know what to do. <laughs> Click that follow button. <laughs> the one thing I'll say as like an asterisk to this conversation and the previous story too, and I've been hearing this a lot recently, for those listening who want to start a beauty brand, who want to raise money, who have an idea, who have a brand maybe that needs a capital infusion, I have been told by basically everyone I know in the industry that there is so much money right now that investors want to give out in exchange for equity to beauty brands. There has, I guess, not in a very long time been this much capital floating around. So well I think they're looking at like the Olaplex. Yeah, IPO, they are. And they're like they they're want like beauty makes sense. You know, technological innovations within beauty can be really valuable. But if you have been thinking about raising money or want to raise money or have an idea, even though it seems like because of COVID, we might be faltering as a country or as a economy. And there's a lot of money right now floating around. And clearly a lot of companies wanting to purchase successful beauty brands, which means an exit, which means usually means that the founder receives a nice sum of money for their work and their efforts up until that point. So anyway, shall we get into the interview? 
week's interview segment is brought to you by Soft Services. It's my company, full disclosure. Speaking of disclosures, and this week's guest is who we work with on developing our products. He not only works on our products, but he has been developing beauty products for quite a long time. He studied organic chemistry at an Ivy League school. I'm not telling you who he is because I basically don't want anybody to poach him. (laughs) We're really busy. (laughs) I can't afford that. But he's incredible and so knowledgeable, both on the operational side of what it means to develop beauty products. He has his foot in the door at all the labs, but he really knows his shit from a science side and all the technicals around how ingredients work together, how formulas remain stable, and he just has great taste. So we took questions from you guys, our readers, and we asked him those questions with a healthy dose of commentary from us, the peanut gallery (laughs) that knows how to make a beauty product, but just not from the scientific standpoint. Okay, I think we should just jump right in with a question from one of our Patreon subscribers. As you know, they get bumped to the front of the line. So here we are. Alana has a great just general question to get the conversation started. So she wants to know what product development looks like from the formulation slash chemical side versus the concept side. And she wants an overview for how these different teams work together. So take it away. Yeah, so the process flow of creating a product essentially comes from typically on the brand side. So it usually starts with the creative team or the product marketing team that has this like incredible idea, whether it's inspired by another pre-existing product or either that or something more blue sky. And are then what's typically translated into what we call a product brief. I feel like this is important just to understand like what is product marketing? I Before I worked at Estee Lauder for 10 months, I had no idea what product marketing was and like how that would be different than regular marketing or other marketings. Just kind of lay out maybe the corporate structure of a beauty brand. So I think on a brand level, Annie knows this really well. Typically there's marketing, right? So these are the people that kind of creates the concept how we're going to be able to storytell and sell a product. Product marketing specifically is how do we market the specific product? So as Customer package brands, marketing things about, right? How do we sell this product and create revenue for the brand? So then there's that. There's what we formally call product development, which technically I fall under that. Product development can mean, in a classic sense, a lot of things. It can mean the product developer creating concepts that works very closely with product marketing to create a physical, tangible product. Or in other ways, product development can also mean formulation chemists, right? So these are the people that actually are in the lab creating the formula that turns into the product that you can buy. And additionally, product development sometimes can also mean packaging engineers, right? Because they're all packaging is also part of creating a product as well. So in many sense, product development can encompass all that, but in more traditional sense on the brand side, product developers are not chemists. They're typically the collaborators of, or an extension of product marketing to work with third-party labs in most scenarios, especially for startup brands where they don't own their R&D lab to then create a product. Your role, whether you're coming in as a consultant or in-house, is so important to brands because you're kind of the foot in the door at a lot of these labs. There's like a finite number of labs or contract manufacturers that can actually make a beauty product, right? And they're not, I mean, as we know, there's a million beauty brands, so they're in short supply compared to the number of people that want to work with them. And you're kind of like the ultimate connector just based on the relationships that you've built and your own reputation to all these different labs. Because even though you mentioned earlier, like 
huge brands like the L'Oreal's, the Lauders of the World can invest and have their own labs. That doesn't mean that actually all their products are even made at their own labs. They still do work with the same manufacturers that a lot of these indie little guy brands use the same time. So it is really hard to get in to labs, especially good ones. So then I guess the question that our Patreon subscriber had asked is what's the difference between the product development person who does the chemistry, like actually decides what the formula is versus the person who's saying, I'm thinking it should be like a lengthening mascara. Yeah. So I think that the biggest differentiators between those two is one person is making the product versus the other person who's creating the, the concept of it. And I think in terms of how closely they work together, basically from being on both sides of the spectrum, whether you're like best friends or best enemies, right? Because oftentimes, right, part of marketing will like tell you like, oh, please create a unicorn for us. And then the lab would be like, we cannot create a unicorn. But I think the key is how do we meet in the middle? And oftentimes that's like the dichotomy of the relationship is how do you work together to find middle ground solutions? So as creative people, obviously we want to create like the most exciting, super innovative formula and product. But as chemists and formulators, their job is about pragmatically, how can you actually create a physical product that doesn't fall apart, that's safe, and that consumers love, obviously, from textural and sensorial standpoints, oftentimes it's working together to find that, again, that kind of that middle ground solution. I think what's interesting, and also sort of like the headline of for this question is product development is typically part of a marketing department. I just feel like people don't think of it that way. But product development slash concept, let's call it, is marketing, right? It's saying, okay, we want to enter X category or we're going to launch this subcategory of a cleanser or a moisturizer or whatever. Like how can we innovate based on market trends that we've seen or data we've seen come in? And then the product marketing team will come in, create a brief that is mostly like marketing speak. They're like, we want it to be moisturizing. We want it to be oil-free and we want it to be whatever. And then the job then of the formulator will be to say, okay, here's the ingredients we'll use to get that. Does that sound right? In some sense, that's right. But I think in many cases too, for brands are definitely a little bit more on the more scientific side. It is important that on the product development of the brand side, that there's someone that's a little more technical besides, okay, let's create a 50%, 500% lengthening mascara. Is how do you understand the nuances of the ingredients that need to be put together to create what marketing wants. So there's definitely a curative element to product development, but depending on how rigorous the product is, oftentimes there's also a science element involved as well. And this is kind of like how I usually come in to, to add value admittedly to brands is being able to bridge the creative thinking, but also marrying that into something that can be digestible for the lab to like be able to come up with, if that makes sense. Yeah, I feel like there's a disconnect to how I think brands are taking a stronger approach to what they want in their formula and how nuanced they are about like the percentages of the different ingredients and things like that. I mean, I know our briefs that we put together for labs are like quite intense and like specific on those things. But I also remember, you know, I've worked with brands before where it's like the brief that you would submit to a lab. It's like it literally had like who would play this product in a movie, totally. <laughs> had like a mood board. And also like here's the bench of like exactly what right. we want. And bench I, is like another product that, that already performs exists. that exists that forms similarly in certain benefits or aspects so that you could say, OK, we like this cream by this brand because of the way it absorbs. And we like this thing for the way that it 
looks like appearance wise or something like that. Yeah, I guess like my question without really having formed a full one before I started talking about this is like, how annoying am I <laughs> as a brand going to labs? Like, do they hate that? Do they They're like, like no, they what, love what cartoon character totally. are you? No, they love that. And I think this is like not something that's expected, but the more detail you know, as brands we provide to labs, whether it's like useless information or, or actually useful information, they don't care. They want as much information as possible because it helps them to create kind of like a North guiding star in terms of like, how can they then think about what they need to do to create the product that you need? And it, you know, forms a basis for dialogue too, right? We talked about the benchmark as like a tangible point of reference for what we're imagining mm -hmm. translated into like something we can touch and feel. That is always something that the labs would love. And the more you can elaborate on that, the closer they can probably be able to get to something that you want quicker. Yeah, because even though there's like a lot of content out there that's showing people like at the labs, the reality is brand founders and people that work on the brand side are not in the lab mixing up goo no, and like talking totally. about, you know, I want it 10% thicker. You know, that stuff is great and being super hands-on is great. But the reality is the day-to-day, -day, you're not in there with them. So I used to hate communicating in benches because I felt like, oh, well, no, I want to create something totally mm -hmm. new. But they are like so important just... I'm realizing that now in this conversation no, <laughs> in terms of creating a shared understanding. Immediately what comes to mind is like preservatives and in terms of newer technology versus tried and true technology, I would imagine that more and more in recent years, people are asking for paraben free or phenoxyethanol, which has like recently fallen out of favor. My question is when someone comes to you and says, oh, like I read about this new mushroom based preservative or whatever, like, okay, maybe there is a study to show that it's effective, but also parabens have been around for decades and decades, and you probably know them to be safe. Like, how do you balance sort of innovation with also like this is science and people are putting it in or on their body and you want to work with things that have been around for a while? That's a, a really good question. I think as the industry is moving towards clean and, and natural beauty, I think there's been you know a lot of talks about how can we move away from these tried and true preservatives. Admittedly, I don't think there are clear answers right now in terms of what is better performing than parabens, phenoxyethanols, propylene glycols, so on, so on. I think going back to the paraben point, the industry as a whole has just really put a lot of bad press on the ingredient, although parabens in itself is actually really safe. Back in the, I believe it was in the 90s, there was this article, I think, that surfaced about how parabens is able to penetrate your skin, which is actually true. However, there's no evidence actually showing that it causes cancer, which I think is why most people are having this automatic association with AC parabens. They think it's causing cancer. There's been a number of studies done by the FDA actually in the 90s leading to 2000 that have actually tried to validate that indeed it is safe. And thus far, there's been no objections of parabens actually as a harmful ingredient. So I think it's not necessarily thinking about always natural is best, right? Because you think about example, poison ivy is natural, but it's actually not great for you. It's actually really leaning towards science and really looking at data to see how safe and effective ingredient is and not just judging based on face value, whether it's synthetic, natural, clean, blah, 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 the many definitions and labels that we often put on ingredients and products. So I think, yeah, again, just coming also from a more science background, I think always looking at science data is the best way to go. Also, from my experience in formulating clean products, there 
is this focus on the consumer side about preservatives as if preservatives are the enemy when if there were no preservatives, you would just be putting sweet almond oil on your face. You know, like all you could use are things that you would buy or and an use every day. formula 100%. that is like turning into ammonia because it doesn't have the right combination of ingredients. Or worse, grows a fungus or a bacteria that becomes a flesh eating bacteria on your face. So like the alternative to preservative free or to low levels of preservatives or low levels lower than what are clinically proved to be effective is actually dangerous to the consumer, even though they don't want to see that on the label. But you want 100%. They're actually good ingredients. They're not bad ingredients. One more related question, and then we'll go back to another Patreon question. So Paula from Paula's Choice has drilled into my brain that if it comes in a jar, it means that it's loaded up with preservatives more so than something that would come in an airless pump, for example, because you're constantly introducing bacteria via your finger into the product and it air and moisture and light and all those things. Either it's an unstable product or it has to be so loaded with not actives, meaning like the preservatives, that it's not good. On Beautypedia, she dings any product that comes in a jar. How do you feel about jarred products? I agree in that sentiment that products packaged in a jar typically require just inherently higher levels of preservatives or more preservatives because you think about it, right? You're constantly digging your hand into the product. So there's always surface contact. And as we know from surface contact, on our hands are always just going to be invariably some bacteria on our hands or microbes. So you're transferring that to the product. Certain products are, you know, perhaps in a shower in elevated temperatures, and it's creating an environment that's perfect for growth of microbes. And that's going to lead to a product that's not obviously great and safe for you. So the the intention of formulating with the higher preservatives to be able to kill those bacteria once they're introduced. So you've already touched on this, just everything that you were saying around quote unquote natural ingredients versus proven science, which I'm borrowing language from a question that a reader asked, what's the right balance between natural ingredients and actual proven science? I think you would err more on the science side, but I guess like the question that this brings to mind for me is like, what constitutes as a quote unquote natural ingredient? We all know there's no like industry standard, but in coming from like a chemist, somebody that formulates products for a living, I'm sure you get your clients coming to you saying like, I want to market this as a natural product. What is the line for you on the development side and what is a natural versus not natural ingredient? The way I think about what's natural is what is not natural. So anything that's in a classic definition sense, anything that's not man-made in a lab is not a synthetic. Anything that's natural is comes from a natural origin. So I guess just kind of maybe answer the question of how I feel about natural and synthetic is I think there's no like right answer on what the right balance is. You know, it all depends on what a consumer is looking for and what works for you and what, what might not work for someone else. But I would say this though, that typically natural ingredients have limited efficacy in terms of like a skincare benefit. For example, let's say retinols, niacinamides, hyaluronic acid, for example, as well. Most ingredients are man-made and because of that, they can be fine-tuned and tailored to drive a specific product benefit. So from a science standpoint, I think synthetic ingredients are definitely what is very important in cosmetic formulations. Okay, so if you could hire a publicist for any ingredient or class of ingredients besides parabens, which we've already gone with. And the publicist's job would be to like rehab its image, whether it's like consumers even know about it or whether just even in the cosmetic chemist community is like people don't like it anymore. Who would you get a publicist for just to get back in the good graces of the global cosmetics industry? I think one ingredient that 
actually no one really talks about, but one that I really love. It's super cheap. You almost see it on every ingredient list. Maybe this, let's turn this into a game. I don't know if you guys can guess it. Glycerin. There glycerin. Go. Oh my gosh, you got it correct. Really? <laughs> people are, people are like hyaluronic acid, low molecular weight, hyaluronic acid. No, it's not nothing fancy. Glycerin is honestly one of the ingredients I think as both as a chemist, but also as a consumer that tried thousands of products. It's a tried and true ingredient that no one really talks about. I think marketers and brands don't really talk about it because it's not new and exciting anymore. But I think it's a forgotten child where it pulls a lot of weight in a formula. It's a great textural enhancer. We all know its primary benefit being a humectant, which means it has great water retention and moisturization properties for the skin. It's super cost effective. It's, I think, $30, $40 per kilo, right? Whereas hyaluronic acid is like two, three thousand dollars per kilo. So from just from a pragmatic sense, it makes a lot of sense as a formulator to use this ingredient. So that is ingredient that I hope brands and consumers too look at it more seriously. We think glycerin is just always there, but it's there usually for a reason. And oftentimes it rivals ingredients like hyaluronic acid, which is also great, but for some situations, you may not even need it. But glycerin can do the job. So we got a lot of questions, I guess, on the other side of the coin. People had a number of ingredients that they were asking, is it worth the hype? Does it really work? I don't think it does. Is there one ingredient that you wish would go away or that you just don't think is as special as all the products that use it say it is? Well, I guess just going off of what we talked about, hyaluronic acid is one that I think <laughs> may be a little bit overly hyped in terms of a topical sense. So hyaluronic acid in its purest form works the best when it's injected or ingested into the body, not uh, applied topically. That would be like Olivia Munn with Japanese sweet potatoes totally. changing her face. Totally. So when you... <laughs> <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. No, no, that's what she said. We just don't, we don't know if that's actually what... Still allegedly. Right. <laughs> her face. Yes. But, you know, you look at cosmetic dermatology, fillers, right, and things like that. You get the benefit most when hyaluronic acid is already in your skin. But I think the most challenging part of hyaluronic acid when applied topically is that it's not really able to penetrate the skin because the molecular size is super large. Not to get super nerdy, but typically there's this sort of guiding rule in formulation or just dermatology in terms of the ability of molecules to penetrate. It's called the 500 Dalton rule. So basically, if you look at the molecular weight of a molecule, if it's less than 500, then it has a good chance of passing your skin barrier, which means that your skin can actually absorb it. Whereas if something greater than 500, it cannot be absorbed. So it's just going to stay there topically on the surface of your skin. So something like hyaluronic acid, even the low molecular weight hyaluronic acid are like 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 Daltons. And typical hyaluronic oh. acid are actually above 100,000 Daltons. So then what is hyaluronic acid doing in a topical skincare product? Is it doing it anything? It provides surface hydration. But what does that mean? If it's not even entering the skin, it's, it's just like what... The hell is it doing? Yeah, so it's acting as a humectant in the sense that it lives on your skin, right? It absorbs all the moisture that it can absorb from the outside environment. And so it brings water to the you know surface of your skin. So in that sense, yes, it's bringing hydration to the skin, but in a way that's surface and topical, but not going beyond the skin barrier, which is for long term is what you need. Does glycerin go beyond the skin barrier? It does. <gasps> there you yeah. go. 
Wow, glycerin. Point glycerin. I made the mistake, though. This is why The Ordinary shot to success in the way that it did. Because as a consumer, you think that you're, like, the smartest. And, like, you think everybody's been, like, hiding all this information from you. And then you hear this thing, like, oh, glycerin's great. And the first thing I do is I go to, like, the freaking... This was before The Ordinary. So I go to the weird costume makeup supply, like the Halloween store, basically. And I get a thing of glycerin because they use it for like special effects. And I like started putting just straight glycerin on my skin. And that's disgusting. It's like slimy and weird. And it just leaves like a coat on your skin. It's not cosmetically, as they say, like elegant. And I think that that's like my biggest learning. And I think people started realizing it about like the ordinary, like one ingredient type products too. It's like, sure, this is boiled down to the ingredient that you are interested in that you Mm -hmm. want and none of the other stuff that you, you're not convinced of or like educated on, but you need those things. You need people like you that are putting it in a cream in a format that is actually like something that you'll use all the time and that won't soak into the shirt that you are putting on afterwards and things like that. My other theory about glycerin. So I've been on the side where a glycerin has been one of like the most important ingredients in a product. And we're sitting around a table being like, what is the photograph to represent that glycerin is in this product? Is it like a beaker with a clear liquid in it? Like, it's not sexy. Like, yes, it's not sexy because it's just been around for a long time, but it's also part of the way that we shop for cosmetics and particularly skincare, or I guess both skincare and makeup is on Instagram. It's visual. It's like looking at befores and afters. Mm -hmm. It's educating the consumer about the ingredients that make your product different than someone else's product. And so if you can't get some oranges and put it next to, you know, the product to represent that it has orange in it or something like it creates an issue, not just like internally for a brand, but also then it might be the best product. But if you can't sell it on Instagram, then maybe no one will even try it. I like this question. Is eye cream basically the same as face moisturizer in terms of ingredients, just in a smaller, more expensive package? About 80-90% of the ingredient makeup of a cream, I just put it, let's say a cream is basically the same. So a moisturizer and an eye cream are both what we call like traditionally in a classic sense, like emulsion type products, right? So think about mayonnaise, it's emulsion because you're combining water and oil and you're finding a way to stabilize it. So you're usually using ingredients like emulsifier. So most of emulsions, and again, this is maybe an overly generalized statement, but most of emulsions in skincare at least share very similar kind of what we call like ingredient profiles. Of course, there are going to be some differences in terms of like specific ingredients. If you go to that level of like granularity, but in terms of the functions of ingredients and the type of ingredients they are all very similar. So eye cream is one of those things where admittedly I don't buy. I just buy a traditional cream that's marketed for the face and then just use it underneath my eye. This person really wants to cut to the facts. This is from one of our Patreon subscribers. She requested to be anonymous. She's wondering, after you develop a new product, what happens when the clinicals and consumer perception studies are not favorable? Do you ditch the product or just run a new study and try for different claims? Her next question is just, I think we can just use all of this as a conversation starter. She's saying, let's be honest, do clinical studies and consumer perception studies mean anything at all? Is it even scientific? <laughs> it's a lot to unpack, and it's a very interesting question. If I can somehow find a way to break all that down, I think one, in terms of clinical data that comes in unfavorably for brand, what does that entail? So I think usually from what I've seen from experience, there's a couple of ways to kind of go about this. One is you don't use the data at all to support any marketing in terms of specific callouts or some brands, and arguably this can tread in the ethics line in terms of if you think this is something that should be done or not. But sometimes what brands will do is they'll reinterpret 
based on the results from a clinical data and kind of create it into a verbiage that is perhaps a little more general and not as specific, and then be able to turn that into something that they can use for marketing purposes. So there's a number of ways to go about doing this. Like may help possibly change the <laughs> appearance of fine lines or right like so that. one's a softening of claims totally to your point another one is just speaking more generally like products like these yeah have been shown to help with totally like you have like the reduction 40, of fine lines asterisks but oftentimes the best way to go about doing this is obviously redoing a test brands oftentimes design clinical tests in a way that the results will be favorable regardless. So they'll ask things like something really general, like, do your skin feel, I'm trying to find a good example. It's like, do you feel like you look less tired? Totally. Something like that. Yeah. Consumer perception survey is like what those are called, right? right? So why don't we break down the different types? Because we see these claims thrown out all the time and very rarely are they given in the context of like, in this sample size or this study included like 10 siblings (laughs) of people that work at this company, you know, like versus this is a third party, you know, clinical study where the products were like not labeled or, you know, it was really more ethically done, I guess. I was actually surprised to hear from you. I didn't realize me just being a a dummy, I feel like, for not knowing this, but I didn't even realize that brands could conduct their own in-house studies like this. I thought you always had to go to like a third-party lab to test for this. Yeah, no, 100%. It's becoming more and more common that brands don't go, I mean, one realistically is, right, it's for budget reasons. Um, No one wants to spend Mm $45,000 on a clinical test if they can just somehow form an in-house panel and quote a study that admittedly is most of the time somewhat biased, right? Unless it's done in a way that no one really know what the product is. There can be ways to go around making sure that it's done unbiased. But usually if it's done like at the brand level and they're quoting like everyone from our brand, obviously they're going to share that. But if they're using subjects from the brand, then most likely people are going to say favorable things. Whereas if you give it out to prospective consumers or people in the audience in the community that can be really objective, then you can actually be able to get some meaningful data. But I think ultimately the best data comes from studies that are very controlled. So in a clinical sense, what happens is there are design methods that are established that exactly measures certain things at a certain time point and ask consumers to evaluate certain things at a certain time point with the supervision of dermatologists and clinicians and to kind of break down what the studies that labs do. So there's something called, which you alluded to, self-perceived consumer study. So this is basically the consumers use the product for an X amount of time, twice a day, once a day, whatever the frequency is. And at a certain time point, they basically answer a list of questions that the brands design and provide, right, to the consumers to answer. So for example, if you're creating a product that's meant to help with hydration, then you can ask questions like, after X period of use, let's say one week, do you feel or do you notice your skin is more hydrated? Or do you feel hydration improvement in your skin? But they're not like going in with like a special tool to measure the hydration level. Exactly. So versus what they're called bioinstrumental methods. So there's instruments like corneometers, right? That can objectively, so instead of a subjective way of evaluating, it's an objective mm. way of evaluating. So there's a number that gets spit out by this equipment that tells you on a scale of whatever, one to a hundred. If you're on a 94 for hydration or if you're on the scale of 14, and then you can really be able to then use that as a way to speak from a marketing claims perspective. We can't name names, but somebody asked who are the best vendors and for what around the world when you're like talking about labs and making beauty products. So like generally speaking, like I know you have to go to Germany if you want a pencil Mm -hmm. eyeliner. 
if you want like a flow through pin, you go to Japan. Where do you go for like emulsions? In terms of skincare products and body care products, Japan and Korea, I think are probably the best in terms of people that can formulate very cosmetically elegant formulas. There's always something like interesting or different about them, whether it's just like the way it absorbs, the way you feel and talking about self-perceived, there's something that always trigger like a feeling and a newness. So in that sense, I think Korean labs do a really good job, particularly in hitting that and always giving you something that's a little bit unexpected. US labs obviously can do like everything. Certain labs are better than others, of course, but there are a few ones out in California for sure that are really good at skincare and hair care. And of course, there are also a few on the, on the East Coast. But to your point, yeah, certain vendors have different expertise. So Germany, pencils, nail polish. There's two country manufacturers in the world that really monopolize the market and almost any brand, Laura included, like outsources the product to them just because they're really the experts and no one really can outbeat them. Color cosmetics are all over the place. China, actually, believe it or not, have really stepped up their game in terms of being able to create really good formulas. Of course, Europe and US as well. So depends on the product type. There's like one place in Italy that everybody kind of thinks of first and they think of color cosmetics. Yeah, there's right? there's a few. Yeah, there's one particularly big one in Italy that you've been in the industry, you kind of know who they are. That's why the PD rule always felt so glamorous when I first started like working for a brand. Was, <laughs> like she was always off to like Italy <laughs> to like meet with the labs. Like what and then I learned, no, she's like sitting in her hotel room, like swatching like a million like unbranded lipsticks. Oh, on you're her like arms. chained to the to a lab, right? Usually at a lab for like three straight days. You're not sipping cappuccinos in Milan. Totally really. not. You're like being presented like forty thousand shades, which like supposed to like narrow down like four options, and then it's like ten percent more red, and then they like two hours later bring another shade that's ten percent more red, but it looks exactly the same, and you don't know if you're like going crazy because you looked at like too many shades or is it actually more red? And then it's like you go back to the hotel and they're usually these factories are like in the middle of nowhere. You look outside, there's four deers looking at you. You're like, what the hell is going on with my life? <laughs> and then the next day you go back and you keep that like for four days and you're just like, I want to kill myself and go home and just sleep in my comfortable bed. Got it. So you want to be on the product marketing team then? Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> we got many questions about retinol. One person asked for your opinion on A313, mm. which is a vitamin A cream from yep. France. People asked whether all retinols, even the sort of most gentle starter retinol formula would cause purging. Okay, several layers to the question. So A313, this is a retinol, R-E-T-I-N-Y-L versus R-E-T-I-N-L. This is a retinol ester. So just to kind of high level, and I think a lot of our listeners may already know this because they're probably skincare nerds. So then the retinol family, there are several classes of retinols or retinol derivatives or retinoids. And the highest sort of most efficacy level, there's Tretinoin, right? So this is prescription formulations or third generation retinoids, which are things like adapaline, commercialized under a brand called Different. And then you have things like retinaldehyde, which is the precursor to tretinoin, retinoic acid. The precursor to retinaldehyde is retinol, is the form that we see the most common. And then the form before this is retinol esters. And this is the least potent or effective form of retinol, basically in that sort of like chain of the retinol strength. That said, it goes back to Nick's question about purging. If your skin is not primed or ready for that kind of level of, of effectiveness, your skin is going to break out. And so for someone that hasn't used retinol at all, A3 and 3 is a great place to start to kind of ease your skin to acclimate so that the, the effects of purging is not as pronounced. So why don't we end it with a question? We got a few different questions as people normally like to pick apart in terms of skincare on price. 
And as someone who knows how the sausage is made and know how much stuff actually costs, what are some kind of consumer misperceptions or interesting things you have to say about how beauty products are priced mm. and what to expect out of higher priced cosmetics? That's a question that I always get asked by like my friends and family. They're like, do I need to buy this $80 cream versus like a $20 cream? There's a lot of factors or drivers in looking at how the product is priced. If you peel the cost layers to an onion, so to speak, I think there's a couple things, right? So one, on a more tangible level and a more physical levels, right? There's ingredients. So there's the cost of the ingredients or like we call it like raw materials. What are the most expensive raw materials out of all the like everybody's favorite skincare ingredients? Like which ones are super expensive? We know glycerin's not. Hyaluronic acid is definitely on the more expensive side. So it's like a couple thousand dollars per kilo. Niacinamide is actually very affordable. Acids can be expensive. So like direct acids like AHAs and BHAs, they can be a couple hundred dollars per kilo if I were to put a number to it. So depending on how much you're using it in a formula, right? Let's say if you're using 10% glycolic acid and it's a couple hundred dollars per kilo, you can imagine your formula is going to be pretty expensive. Vitamin Cs, ascorbic acid, and the ethylated ascorbic acid version, those can be expensive. The stabilized vitamin Cs can be expensive in terms of, again, just being a couple hundred dollars per kilo. Yeah. So when brands are formulating at meaningful levels, right, to really drive performance and efficacy, you're looking at inherently just adding these materials that are going to cost something. So there's that one layer. There's mm -hmm. packaging, which I haven't talked about much, but it's worth to mention, right? If you're like custom developing like a new packaging, that's going to be really expensive. And then on top of that, right, someone needs to make the product. So there's chemists, they need to be paid. There are manufacturing workers that need to help create the product at scale. They need to like make the batch. They need to fill it into this component, which again, adds cost. And then they need to assemble it. So there's all these labor added as well into all this. And then there's that intangible layer, which is how do brands place value on their products, right? So you look at premium brands, automatically there are certain price fine, regardless how cheap or how expensive the product is, just because that's just how the brand is perceived and how they want to maintain their brand equity. So premium brands mm -hmm. certainly have a larger markup. Then that's say like mass brands that you find in Costco, Target, Walmart, for example, and Ulta. But yeah, depending on the brand positioning, brands have different margins that they have to hit and then different markups they have to put on top of that in order to achieve a certain margin. Pricing is kind of like still the wild, wild west. There's no real way to determine anything about the product just by looking at the price. But I would say though, most, and then this is kind of like an insight for people who are curious about how much things cost. Typical skincare formulas, unless they have 45% hyaluronic acid, again, just hypothetically speaking, the product should not cost more than $5 to create, and then brands can then mark up however much they want. Now it's time for our favorite segment of the show, Product of the Week. And my Product of the Week this week is a drink. And I'm always looking for a fun thing to drink. Meaning during the day, instead of just water, you know, I love a spindrift, particularly the lemon spindrifts. But if you go to most any supermarket in LA, particularly Erwan, there is an enormous refrigerator case that is literally just like a wall of canned sparkling beverages. And it's really hard to figure out among them without looking at every single one, like which one doesn't have sugar, doesn't have caffeine, whatever you want or don't want. It takes time to sort of weed through them and figure out also which ones taste good, which ones don't. I have found one that I am obsessed with. It is zero sugar. It is organic, non-GMO ingredients, 
There's no added sweeteners, and it's called Minna, M-I-N-N-A. And it was actually founded by a friend of mine from New York named Ryan Fort Wendell. And it basically is green tea, black tea, rooibos tea bases that have added sparkle. And then they have flavorings like peach yuzu and orange mango pineapple passion fruit, cherry cacao, lime hibiscus is one of my favorite ones. They're so good. They are zero calories. I mean, what do you want to do with that? What can, what, I mean, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Brewed organic green tea, organic pineapple flavor, organic calendula extract, organic passion fruit flavor, organic flavor of mango and citric acid. They're fair trade certified. 1% of the sales are donated to nonprofits advocating for inclusion. It's a brand you can feel good about buying an expensive sparkling drink from. You can buy 12 packs on Amazon. I think you can now find them in Whole Foods. Their packaging is really pretty too. I bought on Amazon a few of these soft drink dispensers, like these plastic things where you can like stack a lot of soft drinks. And Casey, like my husband laughed at me at first and now we like love it. And we have one full of Spindrift and one full of Minna and they're hydrating. They taste delicious. They're fun to drink. We should all be drinking more water. And that's my product of the week. A 12 pack is 30 bucks. How would you say it compares to Kin? I've never, I've, it's less expensive, I think. I've never tried a Kin. What I like about this one is it's just flavors. It's not trying to tell you that it's like adaptogenetic or whatever. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, my product of the week is I finally, I love cutting my own hair. It's something I've always done. I used to go and get a straight razor from whatever the nearest beauty supply was and just cut my hair with a razor. And recently I invested in some actual professional shears, scissors, for my hair and I really liked them. I cut my hair last night and it went well. And they're by a company called Green Mouse. Guess where they're from? Japan. Yeah. (laughs) And they're great. They fit really well in your hand. And I felt like I had a lot of control and they snipped my hair very efficiently. Where can I get them? Just kind of wherever you feel like putting your credit card in online. They have a, it's like, you know, international websites are going to be paying oh, yeah. in like British pounds, but I think all in they're around like $400. What? <laughs> they're not cheap. I, well, they're professional haircutting scissors. I know. You know I guess those are you, like an investment. They're expensive. Yeah. Haven't you ever heard of like people that do hair that have to travel for work? They get so freaked out if it's lost. Yeah. yeah. No, I they know. can't, you can't take, they're like a considered a weapon, yeah. I guess. So you have to check them. Okay. So if anyone has $400 sitting around and. But how much do you pay to get your hair cut? We don't even want to know. See? But also, yeah, I mean, and I know yeah. like all my friends that cut my hair for me for free are listening to this, like, <laughs> rolling their eyes. But like, I also feel terrible. It like having somebody come to my apartment to do my hair. That's my friend. I feel so bad. Okay. And I never get in the mood to cut my hair. No fair. Except for these random times at like, you know, 10 p.m. on a Wednesday night, yeah. which is what happened last night. Is the reason you'd want them is because they're particularly sh- like what's between them and normal scissors? They're very sharp and you have more control. This is the shape of how they fit into your hand. And so I really like them because I, I don't have very thick hair by a strand, but I have a lot of hair. And so I need really sharp scissors that I can basically take vertically parallel to my hair and I can like pull them down through the hair open and they can just kind of thin out. It's like butter. Exactly. They just slide through and they thin. And even buying like cheaper shears over the years, I was never able to effectively do that without it like ripping out my hair. Got but it. these can do that. Okay. Yep. There you go. That's our show, folks. Eyewitness Beauty, as always, is produced by the ever patient and ever... Ever... 
loving editing ever editing ever loving jessamine molly of seaplane armada our theme music is by danny prezant and our cover art is by simon abronowitz you can support us through our patreon it really helps we see every single one of you and for things like these q a episodes you get bumped to the front of the line so you get priority access to cool stuff that we do oh our our first newsletter went out too so you know ask around everybody loved it i think we have a new 50 dollars milky bouncy super jelly star ariel thank you and our very old and very dear friend of the pod flynn shout out to both of you for your support Thank you, guys. Email us, hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com, nick at eyewitnessbeauty.com, annie at eyewitnessbeauty.com, patreon.com slash eyewitnessbeauty, at eyewitnessbeauty on Instagram. Rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Love you, mean it. Bye. Hello and welcome. <laughs> Hello and welcome to I. <laughs> you, you get progressively higher. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs>